The third season of Westworld explores questions about the nature of our reality. The third season is hailed by Decider as a technical masterpiece. Nominated for 11 Emmys, including Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Jeffrey Wright and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Tandy Newton. Stephanie Robinson is the executive producer and writer of FX's What We Do in the Shadows. In 2018, she made history to be nominated in the Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series category for her Atlanta episode, Barbershop. This year, she is the first Black woman to receive multiple nominations in the Outstanding Comedy Series category and Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series category for What We Do in the Shadows episode, On the Run. Here's our conversation with Stephanie Robinson. Tell us about how you got started in TV writing. Great question. Uh, when did you get the bug? And, you know, it, there are various avenues to become a TV writer. You could be a writer's assistant. Mm-hmm. There's often the assembly of correct me if I'm wrong, I've always been told you assemble three episode scripts. One's a spec that's Uh original that shows, and the other two are shows you like, but not necessarily shows you want to write for. Sure, sure, sure. If you want to write for Westworld, you don't submit a Westworld script to them. That's what I hear too, right. (laughs) Yeah, you'll never get the job. So tell tell us about everything in, in, in getting, in getting, in breaking into the business. Um, so I am one of those lucky people in life, I feel like, that I knew from a very early age what I wanted to do. Uh, by early age, I say like pre-high school, around high school, I knew that I wanted to go to school to be a screenwriter. At the time, I didn't even know if that was a possibility. I didn't know if there were schools for screenwriting, but it was one of those things like, you know, I I was I only interested in writing as far as my subjects were concerned, only interested in things to do with language, like, so I feel like Spanish class or things like that were the only things that were interested in me. I was so bad, as I'm sure many writers are, but I will speak for myself. I was so bad at math, so bad at anything remotely, like, scientific, and I was just completely disinterested, honestly. But big theater nerd, did a lot of theater camps, that kind of thing, and I, as I'm sure everybody else in this industry just loved storytelling and loved movies and loved television and they consumed everything. And I I didn't have like a favorite, favorite thing. It was just anytime I got to go to the movies or got to watch TV, I loved it. So from a very early age, earlier on, I knew like, yep, that's what I want to do. I can write and I enjoy movies. I enjoy TV. So we're going to figure out how to make that work. Um, But luckily I did. I found an amazing screenwriting program. I went to Emerson College in Boston Yes. Yeah. It was one of those, I don't know, just one of those places that just clicked. I knew as soon as I got to the campus and did a tour, I remember it so vividly with my dad and just walking around and hearing about the curriculum and the classes, all that stuff. I was like, this is it. This is the place. This is exactly what I want to do. I want to go to class every day and write a screenplay. I want to, you know, join improv groups and do theater and go to film class and learn how to actual cut actual physical film and edit that way. And, and for me, it was, it was just like a no brainer. It's like, I got to go to the school and I got to just do this. Um, so I, I feel like it, it was just 
such a perfect match. And I know, I know lots of people in life either go to college not knowing what they wanted to do or feeling iffy and they pivot. It's just, I was not one of those people and I knew that I had to try to do this at least. And that way, I mean, college was awesome. I, I enjoyed college. I met so many different people. The faculty is great. The connections that they had, the alumni were great. And I, the first time I was, I was in an actual writer's room. I was interning at Comedy Central, actually. I just turned 21. I got this, I got this, um, this internship at Comedy Central. There were eight of us, and it was a diversity program who I think was originated by Chris Rock. He had this, we were called Rock Turns, <laughs> summer interns. Yep. And I did, I think it was the last class of people to actually go through that program. And it's funny, um, I didn't even think about this really till now, but I was told dur during this program that Donald Glover, if, like a few years earlier, had done the same program, um, which is crazy because he's such a great friend now um, that we have sort of gone through the same, <laughs> the same uh, summer internship program. But when I was there, um, we were required to write scripts and we did digital ads and we'd write radio ads and we would bop around different uh, departments and they would break down what we needed, to, what each department did and what we needed to do in each department. And um, we got to read scripts and pilots that were on the area and it was so fun and so cool. But the last two weeks <clears throat> of the internship, I think it was like an eight week internship, we got to hang out in the writer's rooms for the Daily Show and the Colbert Report, which was on at the time. And that was awesome. And that was the first time that I was ever really in there. And I just remember feeling, this is so cool. I love these shows. They are so funny and so great. And everyone was just so smart and so well-read and so sharp. And I just remember feeling so supremely stupid and dumb and like, oh my God, like I will never be as smart as these people. And it, it feels, even though I'm sitting in these rooms, like so unattainable and far away. But um, that was college. And I came out to LA my final semester senior year Emerson has an LA program and you're required to have an internship so I was actually interning at a talent agency and I was interning in the comedy department and I think the feature lit department and I would read scripts and I was like doing deal memos for stand-up comics and that kind of thing and that eventually turned into a full-time job after I graduated so I was there as an intern graduated um as an employee skipped the mailroom because an, an agent needed an assistant. So I went straight to a desk, not that much training. It was terrifying, horrifying. I still have stress dreams about it sometimes. Um, <laughs> but she was in the below the line department and I was working there and I actually met my current agent there at the time I was interning and assisting. So he uh, is an, Emerson alumni. So that's how we met. He had known some of the faculty teachers that I knew. So we met and were able to connect on that, but we really just hit it off and he offered to read some of my work. And luckily I had stuff from college that I had worked on and worked with teachers on. So I actually had material to give him and he liked it enough. And he recognized that I was a baby and was tiny and needed some work and <laughs> some kind of guidance, but he was really, really great and open about that. And, you know, took his time to walk me through um, 
what happened in the, the industry at the time and, and what I, how I needed to adjust my scripts and what he thought people were, and uh, production companies and studios were looking for. He introduced me to my first managers. And so I, I was really lucky in that way to have more people kind of walk me through what needed to happen while also assisting on this desk. Uh, but I actually, in the midst of all of this, assisting, running around, I had written an original pilot and it was something I kind of vomited out in, I think, about a week. And I was kind of unsure about it. I had not told anyone really about what I was writing. And I gave it to my agent, my manager. was like, hey, like, tell me what you think about this. I'm not really sure, you know, if it feels right or, or this is what people are looking for. But they were like, you know what? This is great. It's in your voice. Let's just throw it out there and um, see what happens. So... They sent it to FX, I think just for like a general, general purposes, you know, just wanted me to meet uh, some of the execs over there to say hello, just so I was on their radar. But they actually ended up sending it in the same time that they were staffing Atlanta, which was crazy. So it was insane timing, and particular because they were looking for writers who not only could write, but writers who had some kind of experience with living in Georgia and Atlanta or had some tie relationship with the city for obvious reasons um and i actually grew up in georgia so it, it just at the time felt like a perfect show and i got word that they were gonna throw me into the mix and i was so sure i was so sure i was not gonna get the job i was like this is i don't have any credits the only writers room i've really even been in you know were like a couple weeks at a time when i was in college um I was like this 22, 23 year old, like, I felt like, you know, an idiot. Like, what do I know? I, you know, if anything, I was just so excited that people were even interested in my work and that this was an opportunity. So gracious and so happy about that. At the same time, scouring <laughs> job postings for writer's assistance jobs. Um, but then I heard that Donald Glover wanted to read my script and he was reading it. And I'm like, great, not going to get the job, but how cool is this? And more execs and Paul Sims was reading it. And I was a fan of him and his work. He's an EP and I'm like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Not going to get the job, but wow, like how awesome is this? And then it kind of snowballed into, you know, hey, Donald Glover wants to meet you. You got to leave your desk. And so it was like <laughs> me, like gobbling down food, rushing from my desk job at lunch, driving over to these meetings to have, you know, to hang out with Donald Glover for like an hour, came back just in time to be back at work. And then it was, you know, Paul Sims wants to meet you or, or Diane McGonigal, the other executive producer on the show, she wants to meet you. So it was a lot of in and out, in and out. And it was crazy. It was, it was, it was so chaotic. I remember me trying to <laughs> sneak out of the office. I remember being so stressful. Did you have to have a pitch ready for them when you met them or was it just no. kind of a getting to know you? It was definitely a getting to know you thing and just talking about the project. They had sent me the pilot and I watched that a few times and um, it was just, yeah, it was really just getting to know me and just talking about my relationship with growing up in the city, but also the types of, I don't know, maybe the types of stories I was I could tell. It was just basically just like, yeah, more of a get to know you. What was your experience like growing up um, in this area? But also, you know, what was, what is your perspective? And there was obviously like feedback on my script and we did talk, you know, at length about comedy or what kind of shows, you know, felt um, maybe more in line with what we were going, what they were going for with Atlanta. And so in that way, it was just really, I mean, a really comprehensive type of meet, meet and greet. Um, so I did all those meetings and 
I didn't hear anything for like two weeks. And I was like, oh, for sure didn't get the job. But such a great opportunity. You know, I'm, <laughs> I've got some practice in. I had my first meeting with a showrunner ever, executive producers on anything. So this is, I mean, this is just happening much faster than I thought it would. So in that, I'm just grateful and excited. And I will never forget, it was a Friday and I was working late. There weren't a lot, whole lot of assistants there and we're working, it's dark outside. And my agent, he comes up and like kind of walks by my desk and he's just like, can you come down to my office really quick? And I'm like, okay, sure. You know, log up, tell my boss, hey, I'll be right back. I go down there and he like hits a couple buttons on his speakerphone and like basically my managers were on there and they were like, yeah, you're like not an assistant anymore. You're a writer. You are now... <laughs> like a full-blown writer and a writer you are you know you're a staff it's writer crazy. it was crazy it was insane and I remember my agent he walked me back up to my boss's room he shut the door and he sits down and he goes you're gonna have to start looking for another assistant and she's like what what are you talking about what's going on and he's like your assistant is now a writer and she starts next week, so you need a new assistant. She starts crying, like happy tears, but I think also <laughs> not it's so great. happy. Yeah, it was awesome. And then everyone, remember all the assistants started clapping. It was like working girl. It was insane. It was just such a like, surreal experience, but it was awesome. But that's how I got in. That's, that's the way in. So, um, and I'm gonna, I'm de- we're definitely going to get to <laughs> what we do in, do in the shadows. Of course. I was speaking once with a, um, I was in an improv group and one of the guys in my improv group uh, had the good fortune to, I believe, write on two and a half men uh-huh. for a season. And I said, well, how was it? And he was rather kind of, well, he was an aspiring writer. He kind of had a, I think a humbling experience <laughs> where yep. you hear these stories of, there's the young kids mm-hmm. and then there's the old guys that know what they're doing that have been there. And he talked about that consistent conflict mm-hmm. of the old guard and the new guard and the respect and all of this other stuff. And mm-hmm. when you're supposed to speak up, was there that kind of, do you find that there's that kind of dynamic in the writer's rooms you've worked in or no Donald, Donald ran his show completely differently. Jermaine runs his show mm-hmm. completely differently. Um, I'm just, I'm just curious. No, yeah, I Again, think this that's... is a broadcast, <laughs> oh, you know, not cable broadcast network, yeah. old school mentality. But you know, these are stories we hear, and you know, I and I've heard them too. And I, I will say that I have been fortunate enough for that not to have been the case with me in any of the writers' room I've been in. And you know, Atlanta was a little different because Donald was the most experienced person in the room, and all the other writers had never written before, including myself in on a, on an actual show. I think I had maybe even a slighter leg up because I went to school for screenwriting. Not, I don't know if that ever, ever meant anything, but I mean, if anything, it meant I knew how to format a script and that was probably it. But in that world with Atlanta, like it was, it was interesting just because we, uh, you know, we were reinventing the wheel. We didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> I remember Donald had saying something like, you know, I fully expect us to be canceled. I'm not really, this is kind of more of an exper- experiment than anything else. And I just hope that we write a show that makes sense to us. But there was no expectation 
um, there were, yeah, there were no expectations. It was, it was, um, there was no old guard. There was no, like, you guys have to do this my way or the highway. It was very democratic. Um, sometimes too democratic. I, th- I say that in the nicest way possible because I loved it. It was great, but it was just like everyone threw everything in and we were all expected to contribute. And obviously the buck stopped with Donald, but for, it was, for the most part, it was like, we are all pretty equal in how we work in this room. Um, I did, after that, after I worked in Atlanta, I worked on a show called Man Seeking Woman. And that was a little bit different. And that was sort of, it wasn't, I don't want to say like a shock to my system, but it was different in that I had gone from Atlanta, which was way more uh, fluid in terms of how the room worked, into a room where Simon Rich, who's amazing and I love very much, and he's so smart and funny, he had experience in, um, first of all, he had done two seasons of the show. So I came on to the third season. So there was already, you know, there was already some groundwork laid in the context for how this room should work. But Simon lived in the SNL world for such a long time. And then we had writers like Mike O'Brien who came from the SNL world too. And there were um, other writers who were more experienced who had worked on either late night or um, other sitcoms and had larger resumes than me. So they, I mean, the sh- in that writer's room too, there, it was again, so democratic and so, um, so great. And we never really had any issues in terms of like, you know, being respectful or not respectful. Simon was so awesome in that even to the writer's assistant, if you guys have ideas, please throw them in. Like this is, this is, I want this to be as collaborative as possible, but I feel like there were a little bit more of guardrails up in that situation because I feel like all these writers came from places that were way more structured. And Donald did too, coming from 30 Rock, Donald, I think had that instinct in him as well. But I found that writer's room like very, it wasn't rigid is too strong of a word, but, um, to have more of a structure so that was great but still it was a great experience and then what we do in the shadows I feel like it's it's more of the same like it, it is we do run that room you know with obvious obviously it's structured the right the way it needs to be and it's it's um it's very democratic I think despite that and I keep using that word but it's the truth I feel like we're just very open and whoever has the best idea wins and we expect people to talk and I think if anything we're more disappointed if someone's quiet Um, I'm gonna sneak one more Atlanta question yes please go to what we do in the shadows do you think we'll see another season of it I hope so we we have written two more seasons so we were actually supposed to be shooting, I think like April and May. And seasons four and five, right? Three and four. Three and four. Three and four. And um, COVID hit, I think, right at the time we were supposed to start everything. So, I mean, I, my hope is that it gets back on track as soon as everything shapes up. But yes, it, it, it's, it, it, as far as my knowledge goes, there will be a couple more seasons. Have you watched the third season of Westworld on HBO, David? It's amazing. What Jonathan Nolan and his wife, Lisa Joy, have done by taking this, what was this Michael Crichton movie with Yul Brenner and turning it into this great action noir series that talks about us today in our near future, dealing with artificial intelligence, our reality, and free will and what makes us human. 
This season, Aaron Paul, Vincent Cassell, Lena Waithe, and Scott Muscutty join cast members Evan Rachel Wood, Jeffrey Wright, Tandy Newton, and Ed Harris. Nominated for 11 Emmys, including Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for Jeffrey Wright and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Drama Series for Tandy Newton. Coming to what we do in the shadows. Tell us about that. Had you seen the movie? It's it's such a fun show. It reminds it's it's very much it reminds me of, you know, Monty Python melting into airplane, mm-hmm. melting into Flight of the Concords. It's a very specific sense of humor. Yes. It's got that mockumentary style to it. Tell me about coming to that. Is that and is it is there is there just beats and then the guys improvise or is there a situation where you, there actually has to be five jokes on a page gotcha so what we do in the shadows i mean i came onto that show i had seen the movie loved the movie it was it was very much my sense of humor and it's dark and spooky and i growing up was always attracted to that kind of thing. Anything to do with vampires when I was a kid, for some reason, I was like, this is great. I love this. <laughs> and there was no shortage of media to, to quench my thirst. Um, so coming into the show was awesome. And it was particularly awesome because Paul Sims, uh, who's co-showrunner with Jermaine, showrunner, he, I had worked with him on Atlanta. So him and I already had a relationship and he's someone I looked up to and really respected and still do look up to and respect. But um, it, I, to me, it was just like, yeah, this is a no-brainer. I feel like I, I love the movie. I loved, I read the pilot script. Like, it's so funny. I love this. And I loved Paul. So it was like, I, I you know, I want another chance to work with him again. And this seems like the right thing. And also around that same time when they were shooting the pilot, my friend Natasha, who plays Nadja, was cast as the role. And I actually knew her prior to the pilot and we were friends. So it was just another, you know, oh my God, this is one of my friends and she's on the show. So it, it felt <clears throat> it felt more like family than anything else. And it just was one of those things that felt right. Um, but the show itself, I mean, it is, it is all those things that you said, all those comps that you mentioned. It's a very specific sense of humor. Um, and it's, I have so much fun writing it. It's, 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 I mean, dark, but also smart stupid comedy is probably the best way I can describe it or at least that's my hope or our hope as we're writing the show but um the seasons the episodes they're very heavily scripted actually and I don't think that we care too much about jokes per page necessarily I think that if anything we've actually even spoken about this a little bit this idea of like having a mandate for jokes or or counting them is something that we're kind of allergic to. If anything, we're more aware that the performance is going to carry a lot of uh, the dialogue and a lot of these scenarios or scenes that we're writing. So we, in that way, I'm glad that we have such a talented cast because I feel like maybe a lot of these, a lot of these scenes or jokes don't make sense if they are not in the hands of those masters, but um, they are very heavily scripted. We spend a lot of time on the scripts and we're constantly writing and rewriting. And um, as you mentioned, it is a mockumentary. So that's something like, I think more so than the comedy of it, when we are very heavily focused on the comedy, because we do want this show, I mean, the show needs to be funny. Um, We are so aware of the fact that, okay, this is a mockumentary. 
So we need to be constantly checking in with ourselves about, okay, would, does this scene make sense in the context of a mockumentary or a documentary? Like, would the camera crew be here? Would a camera crew be catching this moment necessarily? Like, is this something that we can maybe build into a talking head interview? Or is this something that, you know, we're going to have to discuss or find later? So I, I think that we are constantly thinking about the comedy, but I think a lot of the times we are constantly thinking about the format as well. But um, in terms of improvising and beats and things like that, like we, again, it, this episodes are heavily scripted, but we encourage our actors to play all the time. I think what usually ends up happening is that we do a few takes as scripted for the sake of the story, but then also for the sake of the jokes that we as the writers have built in there. But then um, we open it up and say, hey, you know, for the next few takes, try anything you want. Um, and a lot of the times it's our actors taking something that's already written there and just expanding upon it, yes anding, <laughs> to use an improv term, um, and going from there. And sometimes they will come up to us and say specifically like, hey, this is something I want to try or hey, this is a this is an accent I've been wanting to do and I don't really know how to work it in. And we always keep that thing that those kinds of things in mind. Um, but it it all I think starts with the script and then we leave it in their hands and they go from there. Let's talk about breaking story on for the episode you're nominated for episode <laughs> yeah. six on the run, where Laszlo uh <laughs> is is discovered by Jim the Vampire, owes him a great debt, rather sure. than paying it, decides to whisk away to Pennsylvania and go incognito in jeans in just <laughs> a uh, toothpick, which you know, no one can recognize. <laughs> and at the same time, he becomes a great supporter, becomes like a local hero and supports yes. the volleyball team. Let's talk about breaking story on that and... When, like, how did that, how did that come about? Did, did so, you guys work your way to it? We did, we worked our way yeah. to it. Jermaine had this kernel of an idea. He came into the writer's room as he often does. He's got like little threads of ideas as we, I think all the writers do. We, you know, when we're not together, we're constantly thinking about like, oh, that could be funny. We're writing it down. And, um, which I'm sure is the case with a lot of writers and writer's rooms. But, um, Jermaine, was kind of adamant about like an episode, like, hey, like, I just think it'd be so funny if someone's pursuing Laszlo. And it's just him on the run, and it's this cat and mouse, him on the land. He kept, I think, or we kept referring to like the fugitive. He kept saying fugitives. Like, I just wanted to be like the fugitive. Like, he's just running, and this guy's after him, and he's done a great injustice, and he's got to pay for his sins. And we didn't really know what that would be or what it was going to look like at the time. Um, if I'm thinking correctly, we had a few ideas. Like, it, it, I think the way that we were earlier, early on conceiving of it was more like the fugitive, like more of a cat and mouse chase where they were bopping around different locations and locales. And sometimes Lazo would be in a disguise, sometimes he wasn't. It was just more of like a chase that lasted uh, the entire episode. Um, but then we sort of got the idea and I just kept thinking it would be so funny. as like, well, what if he's just like a different person <laughs> when he's, um, when he's in uh, incognito, what if we just stay there? And what if it's not so much cat and mouse and what if it's just a totally different story? And it feels like a bad eighties made for TV movie. And it's, he's just in this small town and we kind of forget about Jim the vampire. We forget 
about his family and all the other vampires living in Staten Island. And we just really lean into this guy has a totally different life. And we, we start interviewing the characters that he lives with now. And maybe he's got a girlfriend and maybe he's got kids. And what is that like? And we just abandon everything else to have it like come crashing back later. Um, I mean, for us, it was just like leaning into like the, uh, the, the charming cheesiness of the, 80s bar you know cocktail coyote ugly feel (laughs) of this world and like this small town Clareton Pennsylvania like Bruce Springsteen steel town um and but it was one of those things that it just kept making us laugh and we kept just uh, the writers just piling on like okay then there's like a volleyball team or a baseball team he's obsessed with and he's gotta there's there's gotta be a talent show that's a trope like so there's a talent show thrown in there and a fight with bikers, all these things that we kept piling on. And I think at first it just sort of felt like a running joke in the writer's room. Like it, it just, I don't think it felt like something that we were taking seriously. It was just, we just kept piling on, haha, wouldn't it be funny if we could get away with this? Um, and it wasn't until I think, you know, I mean, I don't know, a few weeks later where we were really like, we should just do this. It's making everybody laugh in the writer's room. Um, it's maybe not anything we've done on the show yet, but it's, I mean, to us, first and foremost, it's, it's the comedy that sort of dictates what we're doing. So it, it was making us all laugh. And that alone was like, all right, you know, we got to go with this and do it. So that's just sort of how it was born. Is that the, is that the bar for whether the, the story, the story moves forward? Y'all got to be laughing. <laughs> I think so. I think it's a pretty, it's like one of those unspoken rules that happens. I think if everyone's lukewarm and they can't really, you know, no one can really wrap their minds around it or if it feels like, you know, we mentioned it a couple of times and no one really laughs or piles on or makes the joke feel bigger or sillier or or, um, more specific enough. I think that's a good barometer for like, okay, well maybe this isn't quite right. But I think um, for me, and it's not even just in what we do in the shadows, it's, it's, any comedy room I'm in or not even comedy. It's the same. I think when I worked for something like Fargo, it's like the thing that we're looking for is like a moment. Like what is that moment or that image or that line or that, you know, the toothpick and jeans or like Laszlo flipping bottles, like cocktail, like what is that moment or visual that's like, ah, we have to find a way to get that in there. Um, I think for me, at least it's always a good, it's always a good barometer for like, is this worth pursuing? Uh, let's talk about the finale, which you also wrote, the, the, Novo, <laughs> yes. the Novo Teatro de Vampires. Yes. Um, uh, I, I went to school in, I went to college in New Orleans, mm-hmm. very much Anne Rice, interview yep. with the vampire <laughs> and love the references of the show and yep. <laughs> how, um, was it Nandor? I think it's Nandor that the obsession with Antonio Banderas. Oh, the Guillermo. Guillermo's obsession. Guillermo, yeah. 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 <laughs> And so, um, so, but this was great because it's like, oh, we've been invited, and, and, and it's it's very much like interview with the vampire. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but where they think they're walking into something that's esteemed and communal, mm-hmm. and it's it's their it's their undoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us tell us about breaking that episode. That episode is exactly what you said. It's like we are, I feel like with this show in particular, because there are, I mean, just in general, because there are so many um, representations of vampires in media, 
we we like to at times go out of our way to point to those things and what would you know say to ourselves like what would our version of that be or how can we make that funny or how can we use that set piece or that world and 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 make it feel like it's a part of our show so interview with and we did it i think the first season like for instance the one that's coming to mind is in coppola's dracula I think like Gary Oldman turns into a bunch of rats and they all scurry away. And that visually was just like, Oh man, that's so cool. We got to do that somehow. And we ended up doing it with Nadja. She turns into a bunch of rats and scurry. So we're, we're always referencing those things. And it's, it's something that is very much a part of our process, but interview with a vampire was one of those ones where we just, we, everybody, I feel like everyone in the writer's room loves because it's so campy and there's lots of hair and, you know, we're dealing with years and years of vampire life and the New Orleans of it all just feels so gothic and satisfying. Um, but the theater in particular was it's something that I think Jermaine and Paul just really loved. They, they loved that set piece and that conflict of these vampires doing magic tricks and luring human women out of the audiences and no one knows the difference so um we knew that we wanted that in there somehow just visually and just sort of makes making our world feel bigger to the universe that we've created the, this idea that there is a touring um group of vampires that performs but um for story purposes it ended up being a perfect fit because we wanted a way in which guillermo could visually and very cinematically or cinematically show the world and his vampire roommates that he was capable of doing lots of damage and killing everyone spoiler alert um but that just felt like such a big intense way to do that and it just was one of those things that lined up with the story and the set piece and it um we just went with it can you tease anything about uh season three like Will Vladimir or Viago uh, be back? I don't know. I can't tease anything like that. We're always, I will say, we are always constantly scanning and begging, probably begging is probably the right word for not only Tyke and Jermaine to come back because they're so funny and so great, but anyone who's played any vampire, we I feel like we've bugged Brad Pitt's people so, so much to come on the show. As we did the first season where we had Tilda Swinton and Danny Trejo, et cetera, and all, all those amazing celebrity actors come in and play with us. I think that's something. Kirsten Dunst. I know. She's part of the Kirsten Dunst, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, Antonio Banderas. I mean, like the list is so long of people that were just like, oh, please come onto the show. It, it would be so fun. But I can't, so I can't tease anything now. I, we'll see what begging, <laughs> what begging gets us in the upcoming season. Um, tell us about your movie at Searchlight. Um, so, yes. Che- I, che- Chevalier de St. George. Is yes. that into production soon? Do you have a cast? No, so we don't have a cast. We're still early on. We have attached a director, Stephen Williams, who I love, and he directed a couple Watchmen episodes, also an EP on Watchmen, nominated for an Emmy. He's incredible and so smart and so incredibly talented. Um, But he more recently came on, I think in May, we attached him to the script, and we are in the very early stages doing another polish of the script and it's going to be time soon i think to talk about cast and try to to put the practicalities (laughs) into place as far as when and where we're shooting how we're going to make that work you know in the midst of a pandemic and what seems to make sense 
Tell the listeners about the project because it's brilliant. Thank you. So the um, the movie is, I, I, I hesitate saying biopic because it's not really a cradle to grave story. And I'm very allergic about the idea of, you know, making it feel like a history lesson or so. I've done a lot of cheats within the script to make it feel um, historically accurate, but with taking some liberties myself. But basically... It is a story about a real life um, fencer violinist named Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de St. George. He is a biracial, born of a slave and a French nobleman, a biracial man who was very famous in the late 1700s for his compositions, his fencing, um, his music work. I mean, so much. He's got such an incredibly insane life. I feel like, you know, you just scan his Wikipedia page and it's just like the greatest hits of life. I mean, he just had an extraordinary life, but he, um, he was friends with Marie Antoinette and was a contemporary with Mozart. And some people even speculate that Mozart was, I wouldn't say heavily inspired by him, but uh, he, he definitely influenced Mozart a bit. And there are similarities there, but I mean, he's just got this fascinating life and he's one of these people that no one really knows about or no one's really taught in schools. Um, about and my approach to this character or this historical figure was like you know two of my favorite movies are Amadeus and Purple Rain and I'm like this is just like where this meets (laughs) and so my hope is or our hope Stephen and I's hope is is that it does sort of feel like that that it feels you know it feels like Purple Rain meets Amadeus that it's like you know this guy was basically like the prince or Jimi Hendrix of his time you know women loved him and he was super famous and but you know obviously um, was met with intense racism and scrutiny. And he ultimately, you know, after Marie Antoinette was beheaded, he, um, he fought for the revolution, at least the abolition, or fought for hopefully the abolition of slavery. And he led his own, um, he led his, his own battalion, I think. And um, he was friends with Alexander Dumas' father. And it's just like this crazy, I mean, just really crazy life. And he died in obscurity and no one really knew who he was. Like he was poor when he died, I think. And, um, wasn't nearly as famous as he was when he was younger, but he's just one of those people that has had such a fascinating life that no one really talks about this guy or teaches about him. Um, before we go, uh, let uh, diversity in the TV writers' room. Mm-hmm. Do you think? Do you think it's improving? What What have you What have you seen? It's hard to say. I mean, I think it's improving in that, you know, like, you know, and I can't speak for the entire industry, but from what I've seen, the thing that seems to be more recurring is just conversations, which is newer to me. The conversations about diversity have become more frequent and whether or not, you know, showrunners or networks are hiring more diverse people. I'm not sure, but I mean, to me, I am pleased that it's being spoken about. So before, um, you know, I feel like a networker, a showrunner hires a director, there's a real conversation about like, okay, like, you know, are there people that we're missing? Are there people that are underrepresented on the show? Should we be looking at more female directors? Like we've got, you know, five white male directors directing the series. Should we maybe consider, you know, someone different? And I think in that way, whether or not, anyone actually does anything about it just the fact that people are slowing down to have these conversations and to consider and to to weigh you know 
weigh this issue in their mind, I think is is something new. Will we get to see you direct soon? I hope. Um, <laughs> we'll see. Fingers crossed. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Stephanie Robinson. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Writing for a Comedy Series for the, for the episode On the Run of What We Do in the Shadows and for Outstanding Comedy Series. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Anthony. This was great. Take care. You too. Be safe. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call Podcast on Deadline. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro, and our podcast series has been produced by David Janov. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.